Today, on the Surgical Fiction Podcast, an ancient skull gradually subsumes Dr. Jolly Fry's time, talents, and mind. Is it possession, madness, or something else altogether? The least detailed plans of a great and complicated apparatus. The tale of the bloody scalpel. Right now, on the Surgical Fiction Podcast. Maybe ten minutes. He'll be dead in five. Slowly, inexorably, the skull had become a part of him. Like an extra Jimmy P was bleeding out, growth. moving ever closer. The to evening the of the second day of battle, I couldn't hospital. have seen a whore and a line of priests. It was so bad outside. Was he was as good as they man. came once the blade parted. Do you have any idea what it feels like to be buried? The surgical task and the writing craft are both goal-directed, cerebral undertakings. But surgery is a left-brain, concrete, right-now thing, and writing is a right-brain, creative take-your-time thing. Surgery requires a rote knowledge of anatomy. Writing calls up an esoteric awareness of words and grammar. Surgery is relatively quick and mentally and often physically exhausting. Writing is time-consuming and brain-building. Surgery is a team sport. No surgeon operates alone. Writing may be one of the most solitary things we humans do. And, for me at least, it is also one of the most rewarding. One, the Neander Valley. The fall of 20 feet killed the tiger but did not kill Cree. Lean and sinewy, Cree had been running and climbing and punishing his body his entire 26 reigns. He was powerfully built, like any ape, and owned a thick, protuberant brow, and under it large, wide-set eyes that appeared ever attentive. His skin was thick and leathery and largely hairless. The sun had parched at the earthy color of burnt ochre. The landing broke his left arm just above the elbow. It also fractured his skull. Cree lay unconscious, a pool of congealed blood under his head and arm, until his people found him. Beside him lay the dead tiger, spitted on Cree's spear, which had passed directly through the animal's once powerful heart. The people oohed and awed at this mystical stroke of fortune and skill. They dragged them both back to the dwelling place, a cave in the low hills on the edge of the valley. The shaman examined Cree by torchlight. She said a chant of hard-guttered consonants and soft vowel sounds. Followed by t t t over and over again, then pulled on Cree's arm until the exposed bone slipped and popped and sunk back under its leathery hide. When he didn't wake up by dawn, the gathered men carried Cree to the mouth of the cave and turned him on his side. They pressed his low gut until he pissed, then fingered his hole until he shat. They turned him onto his back, and the shaman, the single woman present, parted Cree's dirty hair. She found a wound just above his right ear. The shaman, Raha the people called her, was greater than thirty reigns and thus one of the elders of their clan. She was slightly built, with a palsied arm and one leg shorter than the other, as if it had always been so. 
The gash she discovered in Cree's head began to bleed anew as she poked it with a finger made half again as long by a horny, thick nail. A small boy of no more than ten reins knelt on his haunches in the dirt nearby, and Raha eyed him. The elder grunted loudly and pointed to a wooden bowl. The boy tripoded insect-like across the ground with a skewed leg bent outward and fused ninety degrees at mid-thigh. He carried the bowl between his teeth just as if he'd been born to such tasks. The shaman indicated with her good hand that he should crush the bowl's contents. The boy sat back on his haunches and worked a stone pestle in the bowl. Dung beetles and giant ants wiggled and snapped their pincers as the boy crushed them to a gloppy mess. At Raha's bidding, he held the bowl up and she spat in the glop from time to time. The men gutted the tiger and added the animal's stomach juice and bowel gruel to the boy's bowl. He worked the mixture to a thin paste and handed it off to the shaman. Raha sniffed, grimaced, and grunted approval. They laid the unconscious man in the dirt. Several men held Cree's head and Raha took up a sharp stone. Cree pissed as she incised the side of his head and enlarged the cut. She checked the bleeding with black dirt from the dark innards of the cave, aware from long experience that too much bleeding would not end well. Next, she rocked the sharp edge of the stone chisel back and forth against Cree's skull. She carved a crevice, deepening it until she broke through to the meat below. She repeated her efforts three more times, grunting and sweating all the while, finally prying out a square of bone the size of a large beetle. Raha swept her bony fingers into the hole and under the edge of Cree's skull, sinking the longest, with its ugly, too long nail, to the second knuckle. A large clot pushed out and the gray surface of Cree's primitive brain came into view. The shaman spat and wiped her own forehead in her fatigue. She filled the hole in Cree's head with as much paste from the boy's bowl as it would accept and wrapped his head in the hide of the tiger he'd so remarkably killed. Later, she made a necklace of the tiger's eye teeth and put this around Cree's neck. Many days later, Cree regained consciousness. His arm healed more crooked than did his head, and he would always have the beetle-sized divot in his skull to remind the people how sacred he now was. He wore always the tiger's eye teeth as a trophy. He aged very slowly after that, living another three-score reigns, an impossibly long time. He outlived Raha, outlived every one of the people present that remarkable day, outlived even their children and most of their children's children. When his spirit finally fled his body, the people washed and wrapped his mortal remains in the hide of the very same tiger he'd killed, whose yellowed eye teeth still hung around his neck. This high honor was made greater yet as hundreds of dung beetles and other insects were wrapped in the hide with him. Thus reduced in time, his holy bones and sacred skull were buried under the dirt at the back of a cave in what would later be called the Neander Valley of Germany, where they moldered undisturbed for a hundred thousand years. 2. Jolly Fry, M.D. Three days after his 21st birthday, Jolly Fry completed a two-year program of study at the Baltimore College of Medicine in Maryland. The first year, he'd been third in a class of 22, but by graduation, he stood first of the 19 remaining, a feat less difficult than one might assume since the second year was merely a repeat of the first year's lectures. By then, he had run his hands through the decomposing entrails of exactly two cadavers, the remains of a person of low character who had died incarcerated in Ravenstown's debtor's prison on the banks of the Chesapeake River, and, from the local hospital, a fat, unfortunate little man whose girth reminded him of a woman seven months with child and whose skin was as yellow as the Virginia summer grass. 
He had died with pale chalky stools and a water-filled belly, from an inflammation of the liver if such a thing be judged by the pocked and shriveled appearance of the organ. A doctor fresh from schooling is akin to a loaded gun, or better, a horse yet to be broken, for a new doc needs nothing if not to be broken himself. What the young jolly knew coming out of Baltimore Med was mostly book learned, a little pharmacy, a bit less anatomy than his butcher, and still less of the conundrum that is the body at war with itself. He was, in fact, very much akin to an engineer who has been privy to the least detailed plans of a great and complicated apparatus, yet has seldom beheld the device for himself. He had some rudimentary inkling of how the body worked, though only in the theoretical. In plain terms, Jolly had studied disease and its many manifestations, but mostly from afar. He was book-learnt and lacked practical knowledge. His most interesting possession was an ancient skull, bronzed with a patina of age, given him by an ancient professor of surgery named Otto Chadwick. The German, he spoke English with that over-articulated weak for weak accent, had learned his surgical arts at the abattoirs of European masters long before Jolly was born. Born in the Neander Valley of Germany, he was a small, delicate man of impeccable appearance with an affinity for string ties. He had come to the States during the late war, and a bullet to the head had stroked his dominant arm at Petersburg in 1864. He had miraculously recovered and stayed after the North's victory. Despite the apoplexy and the coarse tremor that ensued, the otherwise useless hand and arm moved with unequaled grace during surgery. Indeed, he was the most skilled surgeon in Baltimore for the 15 years immediately following the Civil War. Professor Otto Chadwick was not only apoplectic, but perhaps prophetic in addition. Not a few said he was mad, being nocturnal by nature and prone to long rants if disturbed unaccountably in his office, or especially while operating. He spent his days with a single-minded fervor behind the knife, often berating himself and those around him for the mildest perceived slight. He bit his nights in the seamier parts of Baltimore, where he lived alone in a large home with only a youngish widow woman. He referred to her as his housekeeper, for company. In the summer of 1881, he presented Jolly with an interesting gift at the end of his second year of study, writing in an attached note, I am done. This will bring out the best in you, and the worst as well, I fear. The professor then died of a brain hemorrhage on the very day Jolly Fry graduated. The cryptic note was thus never explained. Also unexplained, and largely unmentioned, at least in polite company, were the soulless Cretans found in the professor's basement some weeks after his death. They numbered half a dozen, more or less for the accounts of the matter were vague and shadowy, the stuff from which legends are kindled. His housekeeper claimed no knowledge of their presence. A big-boned and temperate woman, salacious and alcoholic, she was confronted and run out of town at the point of a pitchfork. Tainted, one official said. Stained by the devil's work, said another. A neighbor shouted, which? And things deteriorated from there. The drunken woman was spared the pyre, but only by the thinnest margin. The Cretans themselves scattered to the countryside, or perhaps they were destroyed with the burning of the house. Rumors and legend, apocryphal tales, superstition and myth. The newly minted doctor had no use for any of this, including the gift. He had known the professor just well enough to accompany him on three or four of his nightly rounds, of which he never spoke again. He had no idea why the doctor would gift him, let alone make it a dying wish. The gift, he discovered upon opening the box, was a skull. Jolly, 
an eager student of both medicine and anatomy, was amused. He examined it and noted the curious presence of a hole above the right ear, an irregular square, somewhat larger than a two-bit piece. He found he could drop a walnut through the hole without touching the edges. It would rattle around the brain case a bit and fall out when he turned the skull over. Probably a war wound, Jolly decided, though the skull looked too old to have belonged to a veteran of the late war between the states. Something else as well, something near unholy. In Jolly's hands, at least, the skull seemed infused with the spirit of the dead German. This last idea sounded crazy, insane even, but Jolly couldn't shake the notion. Couldn't part with a skull either. He tossed it away in the alley trash one evening. The next morning, it was back on the table in his dining room. No explanation. Jolly didn't think he'd gotten up in the night to retrieve the skull, but he had found mud on his sheets that morning. He couldn't explain this. Jolly was no longer amused. The next week, Jolly went so far as to bury the cursed thing in the countryside. He managed a single day apart from it before he inextricably found himself bent in the dirt, digging the bone up by torchlight with his bare hands. He hadn't been able to breathe in its absence, just as if he'd buried himself in that hole. He was a week picking the dirt from under his fingernails. After that, the skull went in his bag, where it remained without incident. His bag went everywhere with him. Dr. Jolly Fry was greatly studied in lung fever, there having been an unusual abundance of cases during his stay at Baltimore. This dire inflammation, in which the patient is difficulty breathing in a wet, flim-riddled cough, he recognized as requiring the most immediate attention. The patient was to be given first an emetic, tartrate of antimony or pulverized ipecac were the usual. Tincture of Virginia snake root, swallowed every half hour in teaspoonful doses, induced free perspiration. If a rapid pulse supervened, one had better to substitute tincture of viridium viride, three to ten drops every hour, which sweated the patient even more effectively. A mustard plaster of the chest was moved several times as the skin became sore, the better to excoriate a wide area. The bowels were opened with a preparation of salts or magnesia, then the patient given flaxseed or slippery elm tea by mouth. The diet was reduced to Indian meal gruel, very thin. With these careful attentions, in most cases the fever would finally abate, and the long-suffering patient, now feeble and low, was dosed with tonics compounded of genetian and a lesser amount of nitromuriatic acid. This last served both to bring the unfortunate soul around and to guard against a relapse. While at the Baltimore College of Medicine, Dr. Fry attended as well a score of women through the grief of childbirth, a dozen at the same sordid hospital as the fat, very dead man with the corrupted liver, and watched half of these last die puerperal fever within days of confinement. He noted with interest that all of those who died had given birth at the hospital. Those lying in at home had lusty babies and rarely took sick, and even then were likely to recover if the physician could bide his time and occupy himself in pursuits far distant from the ailing woman. These observations were the first practical bits of medical knowledge he took home. Thus prepared, Dr. Jolly Fry moved west and hung his sign in St. Louis. With his bag ever accompanying him, Fry took up the practice of medicine and a little surgery. He saw toothaches, earaches, stomach aches, and headaches. He attended a large family overcome by charcoal fumes, saving only the youngest, who owed her life to Jolly's sudden inspiration to paint her face with cider vinegar. The notion, really more of a hunch, came to him unbidden, feeling like a hot breath at his temple. 
He had an idea his head would have exploded had he not tried it. Such ideas, he referred to them as his imperfect work, came to him very occasionally as he progressed in his learning and practice. Men were thrown from horses, wagon wheels collapsed under loads too heavy and crushed their drivers. Drunkards stumbled from tawdry places and fell into the street. The good doctor became adept at use of the Nilitin probe for finding bullets, though extracting the found bullet remained a fraught undertaking. In all of these cases and more, Dr. Jolly Fry excelled beyond the pale. He saved folks others could not, though even he could not say where his oft-curious, even miraculous, ideas came from. It is my imperfect work, he would sometimes say when pressed. Slowly, his imperfect work took on the ardor of obsession. He married, but he couldn't stand the smell of her perfume. She was not lusty enough. He wanted licentious, and she was not that either. She hated the way he carried his bag everywhere. She tripped over it their first night together. It was the last thing she saw at night and the first thing she saw in the morning. She never wanted to see it again. They divorced. Ten years on, a young boy was kicked silly by a horse. Jolly plastered his head and waited. The boy lay an entire day unconscious and afterwards suffered sudden, violent paroxysms. Jolly prescribed a strengthening liniment, waiting for his imperfect work to speak up. But the fits continued one or two a day for weeks, and the hot breath at Jolly's temple did not come. The boy, insane or epileptic or both, succumbed. It was like that sometimes. Jolly could not control the notions. They always came unbidden. The boy had left a scar, however. Watching the boy writhe about unnaturally, watching him piss and shit himself day in and day out, had been hard. More than once, Jolly had thought to end it. But what he had really wanted was to save him. Perhaps, for his own sanity, he had needed to save him. But need, it seemed, had nothing to do with his imperfect work. And now, 15 years after leaving Baltimore for the West, Jolly had an itch in his craw. His medical bag, which he carried everywhere, seemed to be gaining weight, literally. It could have been the once light bag only seemed heavier, that he was getting older and the weight of the thing at the end of his arm was an effect of the rheumatism, but he doubted that. He felt fit as a fiddle otherwise. Besides, he knew better. It was a goddamn skull. Slowly, inexplicably, the skull had become a part of him, like an extra appendage or an unwanted growth or a tumor. That was it, he decided, a tumor a diseased piece of flesh he'd have cut out if found in one of his patients. It festered, but never quite fulminated. Instead, it gained weight, like an abscess that just kept growing, pushing aside all in its wake. Or perhaps it was just Jolly's obsession with the skull that gained weight. Jolly prescribed a change of venue for himself, not unlike a consumptive seeking a sanitarium. He packed his bags and headed further west, this time all the way to the Pacific coast, Perhaps he hoped the fresh salt air would lighten his load. San Francisco in the late 1890s proved a lively place, with no shortage of cattle, money, guns, whores, and card games, which meant no shortage of work for enterprising physicians. And Jolly was, if nothing else, enterprising. He wanted, needed, to save people. And of course there was Chinatown. That particular den of iniquity, the stories Jolly had heard with curled teeth, held its own unique promise. He thought a man could get lost in such a place. San Francisco, then, on the Gold Coast of California, 
seemed just what the doctor ordered. He found the city abuzz with Pasteur's revolutionary germ theory, which had recently been validated. Listerian antisepsis and its carbolic acid spray was all the rage. The skull, which Jolly had begun to call Chadwick, sometimes in his head, he had the insane idea the skull was ranting at him, in something akin to German, just as the old professor had, went to the Gold Coast as well. The bone with the irregular square hole over one ear was right where it had ever been, in a black box at the bottom of his medical bag. And that bag never left Jolly's side. Three, Chadwick. Jolly was not prepared for Chadwick's first words to him. It was a Saturday afternoon, and he was in his private clinic near the waterfront, leaning over the near-lifeless body of a young man who had fallen a dozen feet from a roof somewhere in the city. Unfortunately, it landed on his head, face first. A two-foot piece of iron stake protruded from where his left eye had once looked out. The impaled man was breathing, but they were slow, laborious breaths of an agonal sort. Jolly thought he might survive an hour, two at the most. If it can't survive an hour... He can survive a day, and if a day, then a week. The words came unbidden, a hot breath that all at once filled Jolly's head like water rushing uncontrollably over a coffer dam. He stood tall, hands up before him, his eyes searching the room over the tops of his spectacles. As he had already known, he and the impaled man were alone. Jolly was pretty sure the impaled man hadn't spoken. In his professional opinion, the impaled man was unlikely ever to speak again. Aside from that, the voice, with its over-articulated veek for weak accent, was familiar. Who's there? Jolly asked. Me aunt you, uns. Who is me? Jolly hesitated, not sure he wanted to know the answer. Chadwick. Jolly would have thought it a joke, except a joker wouldn't have been able to get in his head, and this voice was decidedly in his head. He wasn't exactly hearing the voice, he was feeling it. It was just as if a window had been opened, not one present even a moment before, and he was looking out on a totally new vista for the first time. Or rather, and this felt more to the point, someone else was looking in, on him, and that person could see everything. Though he had probably never wanted to do anything less in his whole life entire, he turned his head. On the floor beside the door sat his black bag. Jolly Fry M.D. was stamped an inch-high gold braid just as always. The clasp, which Jolly hadn't opened that morning, was undone. The mouth of the bag yawned wide. Oh, fuck me. We must vent the pressure, quickly. In Jolly's head, it sounded, felt, like German. As he thought this, the bag twitched. He took a cautious step toward it. The man on the table was growing duskier with the passing seconds. He had long, thick hair, probably black but so full of blood Jolly couldn't be certain. He made a choking sound and his Adam's apple bobbed up and down, then began to shake in the grip of his seizure. The medical bag twitched again, audibly this time, and Jolly ignored the man and took another step toward the bag. He could see the inner contents near the top of the bag now. The smeared newsprint of the San Francisco Chronicle, folded, protruding from an inner pocket. Behind it, a sheaf of papers and a loose-leaf binder. A worn copy of Saxon's surgery principles for the general specialist. The top of his wooden surgical instruments case with the clasp appropriately fastened. The bell of his stethoscope. And the bronze patina of the skull. 
What the fuck? How did that? I didn't take you out of your box. You. Jolly realized he'd said you. Not that. Not it. Chadwick? There is no time. We must act quickly. Jolly leaned over his bag. In the depths of it, he could just make out the top of the skull. The box that had held it was black dust in the bottom of the bag, as if it had corroded away. He saw the hole in the cranium on the right side, just above the ear, silhouetted in red. Blood red. Bleeding. Jesus Christ. No, Chadwick. And that was how it started. Four, a god. Chadwick guided him. The first order of business was to gather up the man on the table and move him to the theater. This was Jolly's private clinic, and in it he maintained a theater where he operated on his more affluent patients. Most of his work was done at the public hospital, of course, but once a wound was opened in that den of filth, it was as likely as not to fester. Jolly preferred operating in a patient's dining room to that hellhole. Of course, that was simply impractical with modern Listerian antisepsis. Nobody wanted carbolic acid sprayed all over their home. The stuff ate into everything. It killed bugs, but it tarnished silver, too. And hands. Every surgeon and every surgeon's assistant in town had chemical dermatitis. Jolly's hands itched always. The outer skin turned black and peeled incessantly. Gathering up the man was no problem. Jolly discovered his arms possessed twice the strength he'd had the day before. Indeed, an animalistic vigor flowed through all his extremities as he lifted the man and carried him across the hall to the theater. He placed the man face up on the operating table, adjusting his head so as to maintain his airway. The guy went from dusky gray to something not quite pink with his next few breaths. Jolly set the skull on the table beside the impaled man. Was Chadwick looking at him? At both of them? Jolly thought so. The skull had no eyes. Chadwick was just bone. But something had changed. It wasn't merely the blood lying in that hole either. The bony eye sockets themselves had changed. Jolly had seen an ape once at the Philadelphia Zoo some years earlier with his bulging brow. The skull's brow seemed to mimic that ape. The eyes shadowed under powerful and primitive bony prominences. The skull of a caveman. The thought came to him in the exact manner of his imperfect work as a hot, unbidden breath against his temple. Inside my temple, he corrected, inside my head. It was all the time he had to dwell on such insanity in the moment. He quickly set up the Listerian apparatus so as to spray carbolic acid over the surgical site and retrieved his knives and treffin drill from his bag. He took off his suit coat and rolled his sleeves to mid-forearm, reaching first for the spike impaling the man's eye. Chadwick's bones, the very goddamn structure of his face, morphed in indignation. One side of his mouth, both the upper and lower jaw, skewed upward as if suddenly made of molten lead rather than solid bone. He had no lips with which to bend words, but he bent them nonetheless. Leave it. We must vent the pressure. There is no time. We must act. Jolly hesitated just long enough to take in a substantial breath, then tied the man's long hair back and made a quick slice with his knife on the right side of the impaled man's head behind the hairline. He cut to the bone in one fell swoop and tied off the temporal artery before it could bleed too much. It was all so easy. Why hadn't he seen it before? 
He laid bare the skull by pulling aside the skin and temporalis muscle. He picked up the drill, and Chadwick smiled. His liquid bones smiled. Treffening the skull, which had always been so laborious in the past, was just as easy as ligating the artery had been. He knocked out the final bit with a chisel and small carpenter's hammer. Less than 20 minutes had passed. Impossibly, the impaled man's chest still rose and fell. Life still possessed him. A thin mist of carbolic acid filled the room, renewing itself periodically from the spray apparatus. Jolly's hands tingled. Once he had the skull vented, the doctor pushed a finger in and curled it around to extract the clot of blood Chadwick told him was there. It came out as a reddish-gray gloppy mess, blood mixed with brain matter. He's a dead man, Jolly said. Not at all. The disembodied voice of the dead German echoed in Jolly's head, underlaid by something like ka 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 The sounds were decidedly not German. In fact, not any language Jolly had ever heard. If I live a day, we must collect a few incidentals. They left the man in the theater, his head still vented to the air. Chadwick said they wouldn't be gone long. Jolly had always been a practical man, a conscientious physician. He covered his still impaled patient with a sheet. Closing the door, he glanced back. The sheet looked for all the world like a winding cloth. He and Chadwick were gone an hour, long enough to stop by both the apothecary and an herbalist in Chinatown. He carried Chadwick into the herbalist with him as a bulge under his jacket. The herbalist, a cadaverically thin Asian man with a pencil mustache and wispy hair no doubt thin by years smoking his own root concoctions, was apparently no stranger to the bazaar. He seemed nonplussed by the doctor, even as Jolly kept checking with whatever he had under his jacket. Yes, of course I have cockroaches, the proprietor answered in response to Jolly's question. We, I, would like a handful. Desiccated, no doubt. Jolly looked down, pulling his jacket open a tad before he nodded. The herbalist moved slowly from behind the counter to a glass jar on a shelf behind Jolly. He opened it and pulled out a handful of dried roaches. Jolly observed this, then hesitantly stepped forward. That appears to be Blatella Germanica. I am impressed, kind sir. It is a rare man who knows his roaches. Jolly checked with Chadwick under his jacket, whose face did that liquid contortiony thing again. Jolly said, I need Archimelacus Egantoni. Ah, a very good choice, kind sir. But B. Germanica is as close as you'll find, I fear. Jolly's face now contorted. But I must have Egantoni. The proprietor shifted his weight inside. Absolutely not available. But B. Germanica is a very able substitute, whatever your need. Of this I assure you. Besides, Egantoni is no more. How's that? It is, how do you say, extinct? Perhaps fifty or a hundred thousand years. They're left without the roaches. Chadwick explaining that desiccated cockroaches lacked vital spirit in any event. Of course, the waterfront was infested with roaches of a more vital sort. Back in Jolly's clinic, they searched the damp cellar by candlelight. Jolly had never seen so many roaches. B. Germanica was everywhere. Well, do. But it was all they had. 
Jolly mixed the drugs and herbs to a gruel, using his own spit as a binder. He stepped on a cockroach. He couldn't have said it was B. Germanica or A. Gantoni. To him, it was a bug. Then another, and another, and scraped them off the floor. He added them to the gruel, which had become more of a paste by now. It was Chadwick giving the instructions, but the voice was that unfamiliar foreign muttering. The instructions would not have been intelligible without Chadwick translating them. That, at least, was Jolly's sense of it, for all of this sordid business took place in his head with his hands doing the bidding. Ka, ka, ka. It was only then, with the ranting of that foreign tongue pinging his brain, that Jolly understood the hole he'd made in his patient's skull was not to take something out, but to put something in. He filled it with a roach paste and sewed the flap closed, feeling not one hope in a hundred the wound would heal. The man would not survive. The following morning, a Sunday, the man's pulse was stronger. At Chadwick's insistence, Jolly pulled the stake from his patient's eye. There was no bleeding. He moved him, half dragged him, since he no longer had the unnatural strength of the day before, to the cellar. Jolly still wasn't convinced the man would live. He didn't want others knowing about him if he died. He watched his patient carefully. Within a week, his wounds were healing, the fastest recovery Jolly had ever seen, especially considering the severity of the original injury. Jolly was ecstatic. What have I discovered? But weeks passed, and the man rose from his bed but didn't speak. At first, he did no more than sit in a corner and shit himself, becoming pale and sallow from lack of sunlight. He failed to thrive but did not die. He had only one remaining eye, but it must have been keen, for as the weeks passed into months, the remains of rats and the occasional cat or dog appeared in his cellar room. He reminded Jolly of a primitive, with the withered flesh and coarse sinew of a reluctant cadaver. Why does the man not die? Jolly asked himself this question, or one very much like it, several times a day for years. He was ashamed of what he had created, yet fascinated. He was, after all, a man of science, a man living in the vaunted modern age of Listerian antisepsis. For a thousand years plus, since the days of antiquity, man had tried and failed to incise the human body. Always the result was the same the fester of infection, the specter of death looming large. I've changed all that. And so he had. The impaled man should have been dead several times over. That he was alive, withered or not, was no small miracle. Chadwick must be a god. Five, the question. Why does not the man die? The question tortured Jolly between visits to his women a different woman every night. As a young man, his sexual needs had been few, but now, approaching 50, he became a man obsessed, or perhaps possessed. He had the devil in him, but he couldn't help it. And it wasn't just that his needs had increased. He had developed certain proclivities that, enjoyment aside, disturbed him, greatly. For one thing, he had developed a taste for rare meat, so rare as to be almost raw. He didn't even like to see scorch marks. He wanted his meat to bleed, just as he wanted his women. Some things one just doesn't think about. He feared the things he did in the gray hours after midnight, feared they would someday be the death of him, certainly the death of somebody. He lacked control, or rather, Chadwick lacked control, 
It was that goddamn skull. Why does not the man die? Two and a half years after the impaled man left his operating theater for the cellar, another unfortunate came within Jolly's ungodly grasp. The nameless boy was dropped unceremoniously on the doorstep, leper-like and appearing plague-ridden. He labored to breathe and drooled like an imbecile, with his neck twisted and torqued such that he was nearly looking behind himself. Jolly immediately recognized the looming death of a festering meningitis. Chadwick, watching from his usual spot on the shelf beside Fry's medical bag, without actual eyes, Jolly always found it difficult to tell where Chadwick was looking, concurred. But that was as far as it went. Jolly knew what he should do, what Chadwick said he should do anyway, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. He had brought one man back from the brink only to discover in him a subhuman mean. He left the boy twitching on the floor and withdrew to his private library. Of course, he took Chadwick with him. Chadwick insisted upon it. Chadwick always insisted upon it. With the drapes ever drawn, Jolly stood in the darkness of his library and fingered a half-empty shot glass. In the flickering gaslight, he gummed a mouthful of whiskey and stared at Chadwick. Sometimes, the burnished bone alongside the hole in that goddamn skull gleamed as if made of polished rosewood. It appeared so now, infuriating Jolly. The physician could see his own eyes staring back at him in the high gloss, like casket wood, that gloss. Those eyes shone listless and floaty, not unlike those of a bloated man he'd once stuck in the gut to drain off the wretched bile that was killing him. You fuck, Jolly said. Chadwick did not flinch so far as Jolly could tell. God damn you, I can't do it. I won't do it. And the man, he lives, but he does not live. Oh, God. He walks the earth, but he does not live. He breathes, but there's no fire here. How is that possible? Jolly slurred his words, simultaneously pressing the shot glass to his forehead, looking to the ceiling as if he expected an answer to come from a god he had never known. When none came, he downed the remaining whiskey and chucked the glass toward the skull. The jigger struck Chadwick and knocked him off his shelf. He tumbled through the air as Jolly watched, taking long enough to hit the floor that Jolly had time to imagine himself tumbling just so. He panicked and reached out, but Chadwick struck the floorboards just beyond his outstretched fingers. The skull broke into a half dozen jagged pieces of bone. Jolly lay on the hardwood, not quite whimpering. He had a brief instant of regret. What now? Then in his fall, he realized this was what he had wanted. Wasn't he now free? Yes, yes. Free. He sat up and leaned backwards against the bookcase. His spine pressed and upright in the wood. He breathed deep. If he was free, why didn't he feel free? Somewhere nearby, a howl. Jolly's eyes dilated, and in his weariness, he spoke under his breath. What the hell was that? A wounded animal? Yes, that's it. A dog caught under a carriage wheel. His voice wavered with desperate hope but it came again, and too close in proximity. Not some dog out in the road. The howl was long and dirge-like, and it wasn't just nearby, it was beneath him. The cellar? A dog in the cellar? But even as he said it, Jolly knew that wasn't right. No dog could live in that black place. The only thing down cellar is his, oh my God. Something is moving down there. Jolly felt it in his spine through the vibrations of the bookcase. His voice was tense and high-pitched, 
Sweat paraded his armpits. A thump on the stairs. Oh, God, no. He looked at the door. Closed, thank God. Had he locked it? He didn't know. Would it matter? He didn't think so. He stole a glance at the fragments of the skull. Were they quivering? Chadwick, I must put him back together. Now. He crawled the short distance to the scattered bones. The thumps continued up the stairs, closer with each beat of his heart, which he felt severely in the depths of his chest. Jolly collected the fragments. His fingers were clumsy in their actions. The pieces of bone felt foreign, not at all familiar. Oh, God. It's on this floor. The thing, Jolly couldn't bring himself to think of it as a man, not anymore, was at the top of the stairs now. His voice trembled with the exact pitch of an eight-year-old girl lost in the dark. He fumbled with the bones, trying to reconstruct Chadwick. His hands had done so much over the years, but they couldn't seem to do this one thing, the one thing that mattered at that exact moment. He pressed two bones together, and Chadwick's left eye socket suddenly stared up at him. Another jagged piece fell into place, and Chadwick now had half his face and base of one ear back in place. Jolly heard the thing coming down the hall now, sounding off fettle the way it dragged one foot and clunked the other heavily with every other step. Jolly's crotch moistened. The room turned rank. He groped at the two parietal bones, large, mostly flat with broad curved contours, and pushed them together over the top of Chadwick's skull, recreating the brain case. The skull looked complete now, except it didn't feel complete. Jolly held it up before him. Chadwick seemed to leer back at him, except it was only half a leer. Your lower jaw, where the hell's your lower jaw? He held his breath and stole a glance at the door. The knob turned. He thought it otherworldly. He spied the jawbone under the corner of the fainting couch the last moment. He reached out, curled his fingers around it, and pulled it to him. It all but reattached itself. The door, which had opened far enough for Jolly to see he did not want it to open any further, stopped. That hurt, Chadwick said. I'm sorry, it was an accident. Won't happen again. The door closed. The thing slumped and clunked its way back down the hall, back to the cellar. Back to hell, Jolly thought but didn't say. We have work to do, you and I, Chadwick said. Jolly nodded emphatically, if not quite enthusiastically. If Chadwick's words came out like a hot breath before, they came scalding now. Back in the exam room, Jolly looked at the failing boy. Emaciated, waves of fever came off him like heat from a coal stove. He touched the boy, skin dry as parchment. He pulled the eyelids up. The now listless child stared past him. Not quite the glazed over death stare, but close. He might have been blind for all Jolly could tell. Here was a chance to make science. The boy was certainly dying. We must vent the pressure. Jolly picked up Chadwick in one hand and cradled the child, who seemed to weigh nothing, in the other. They moved to the theater and Jolly set up the carbolic acid sprayer. He selected a knife and pulled a trephin drill from his bag. The room filled with a corrosive mist. The thing in the cellar guttered something both subhuman and unintelligible. Jolly's hands tinkled. Chadwick guided him. The insanity that followed was not for the faint of heart. Six, a wasted bunch. The nameless boy fared no better than the impaled man except he confirmed Jolly's supposition that something in the ancient paste was, if not life-affirming, 
at least death-defying. Or maybe he was just insane and thought it so. The years passed. Three, five, seven. The imperfect work, Jolly told himself it was in the name of science, but more and more it seemed in the service of obsession and madness, continued. And always under Chadwick's perverted guidance. Their animating spirit lost, his patience survived. They were goddamn indestructible, Jolly thought, and toasted his imperfect work in bars across the waterfront, unable to get them out of his head, let alone his cellar. They were a wasted bunch, no soul to speak of, a corruption of the human condition. The number of these ghosts, most physicians were haunted by the patients they lost, Jolly saved them and was haunted all the more, and the cellar under his private clinic increased one or two every other year. He couldn't bring himself to kill them. Indeed, he didn't know if killing them was even possible. Besides, they were his creations. He had pulled them back from the brink of death. Did not every doctor dream of such things? If not in reanimating the dead, then surely in staving off death. The creatures came and went at odd hours of the morning, but always under the cover of darkness. They trapped rats and sucked the innards from cockroaches for sustenance like milk from the mother's teeth. They rummaged the streets, molesting trash heaps, chicken coops, and cattle pens. On the blackest nights, Jolly grew to loathe the new moon. They came out in bunches, not just singly or in pairs. Sometimes they took entire cows. Rarely, they took only parts, leaving the dying, bleeding animal to be found by its master in the morning. They even dug up fresh graves looking for meat. Jolly feared more they would find meat of a fresher sort. Two-legged meat. Rumors abounded. The neighborhood was said to be haunted. Unmentionable things moved in the shadows. The number of strays in and around Chinatown fell to nil. Whatever problem the rest of San Francisco might have with rats, the blocks around Jolly's clinic had none. Sometimes the police investigated, but never in any substantial way. This was the edge of Chinatown, after all. Jolly's clinic was on the borderland between Chinatown and the rest of the waterfront. It was a once swampy, mosquito-infested, inhospitable land, the last part of San Francisco to be occupied, given to the Chinese precisely because it was felt to be near uninhabitable by the city's fathers. Two problems solved in one swipe of the pen. The prolific Chinese, they bred like rats in the sewers and were perhaps just as filthy, would be largely out of sight and thus out of mind. With luck, the insect problem would disappear as well. The city's leaders preferred the Chinese to the mosquitoes, but that was as far as it went. They had no interest in policing them inside their own pestilential community. Whatever weirdness abounded there was not the city's most urgent business. Besides, the officials couldn't be bothered with myth and innuendo. The Chinese were a superstitious lot. Tales of half-dead horses with missing legs, of pets vanishing in the night, of grave robbing. These were apocryphal things. And so the people burned their trash and learned to keep cherished pets, and even horses, close. At night, the neighbors shuttered their windows against the occasional sounds heard coming from within the boarded-up windows under the clinic. They were the sounds of wild animals feeding, of abominable happenings, of things best ignored by a civilized society. The sounds of Chadwick's people. 7. Mad Dog Fuck it again. A primal lust whispered in his ears a disembodied breath of hot air. They had done it twice already, 
and still he did not feel satiated. Jolly cursed himself. I don't need you for this. This I could have done with my wife. Needless to say, the woman on the bed was not his wife. The woman was Asian for one thing, and he no longer had a wife for another. She was half his age or less and smelled of boiled eggs and of the lye soap used downstairs in the Chinese laundry. Her age aside, these smells did nothing for him. He would have preferred the stink of the pig pens and horse stalls in the alley. He made a mental note to do better in the future, or worse. It was a matter of perspective. Jolly looked over at Chadwick and a renewed surge of primitive want and urge filled him. Lust by another name. It shimmied up his spine, wanted to boil the very skin from his bones. He thought, or perhaps only imagined, Chadwick was looking back at him. Having only sockets for eyes, it was sometimes difficult to tell where Chadwick was looking. He pushed into her, the woman that wasn't his wife. A warm air blew across the low San Francisco hills, redolent of salt and sardines. The pungent smell of boiled fish guts mingled with dried herbs wafted up from the Chinese kitchens at street level. Roosters crowed and chickens clucked in nearby pens, and somewhere out in the bay, a distant steam whistle pierced the night, shrill and caustic and haunting. Jolly's breath came once again in quick short gasps, and he felt the sweat slicking his armpits. He pulled the woman close in his arms and ground himself against her. She had black hair, which he liked. She exhaled a breathy, sultry tone as he entered her. Nice. The thin bed complained loudly as they bounced up and down. A cheap whore. The words were for her, but they could have been meant for him just as well. Another breath of hot air. Something like, ka, 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 repeated several times. And Jolly found himself grunting. He looked down on the girl under him, how docile she was even in the midst of his pounding. He covered her lips with his, grunted again, looked over at Chadwick and spit in her face. He bit her shoulder hard. Now she came alive, flailing under him. She punched his face. He fell back, reveling in the iron taste of her blood. He spent himself in his hand. Finally satiated, Jolly Fry rose from the bed and dressed. He looked at the girl on the bed, at the blood seeping from her shoulder, and cursed himself. He'd gotten carried away, but really it wasn't his fault. The whore was only half his age, and still, she'd barely managed to keep up. For your trouble. He tossed a silver dollar on the nightstand. You crazy, the girl muttered. Like mad dog? Probably. He looked in the mirror and rubbed at the bruise on his cheek. Thanks for this, it helped. He wiped the blood from his lips and mouth with her petticoat and tossed it on the bed beside her. Mad dog, the girl spat again. All men are mad dogs, girly. Some are merely more honest in their acts. He turned out the oil lantern and picked up Chadwick. The dead weight of the skull was led in his hands. He left via the front stairs, as always, and decided a stroll through the niggardly streets of Chinatown would be reviving. The stench of piss and horse manure in the gutters kept him moderately aroused the whole way. Eight, Apocalypse. When the apocalypse came, it came hard. Jolly was with one of his girls. She wasn't Chinese. His proclivities had become too well known in Chinatown by 1906. No madam who valued her stock would let him through the door. Whatever. He had come to value the baser instincts in a woman, and the Chinese were too proud of people for his needs. 
Over the years, Jolly had realized another aspect to his imperfect work, a side effect of sorts. Running with Chadwick, feeling the skull's hot, grotesque breath ever at his temple, built a sort of black steam within Jolly himself. And like a boiler that would otherwise blow, that steam had to be vented. His girls were the vent. He thought of them as his because he ruined them. Not intentionally, but he ruined them just the same. Couldn't help it. A few hours with him, a night touched by the black steam he filled them with, and they were like boiled bags of skin and bones, scalded souls, so to speak. He preferred a common street whore. Not only did they rarely bathe, which was a bonus, they hardly ever complained, which was essential. They gave their blood, if not freely, then at least wantonly. At least, that's what Chadwick said. Jolly's own recall of his sexual escapades had become increasingly clouded. In fact, Jolly himself had become increasingly clouded. Sometimes he lost time. Other days he fell into a stupor and could barely recall his own name. Was it Jolly or Chadwick? With each passing day, it seemed he was less the former and more the latter. On the morning of April 18, 1906, Jolly was fucking his latest winch. He caught her upper lip between his teeth and tore it off in exactly the manner of a jackal ripping into its prey. The resultant wash of blood was exquisite. Her screams were primal. The blood spilled across his hands and lubricated their way around her neck. He slurped at her macerated mouth as he squeezed his fists. The whore's eyes bulged like twin blood-filled bladders and she writhed under him as no woman ever had. He had the strength of two, no, ten men. And when her neck finally snapped, it was like breaking a piece of dry kindling. Her neck popped audibly, and a spicula bone poked through the skin at the back. She went limp against his hardness. Jolly knew none of this, of course. The transformation was complete. Inside that stupor's brain, whatever part of Jolly remained wasn't enough to light a match. The eyes that peered out from Jolly's bony orbits possessed a wanton lust the late physician could never have mustered on his own. And they were primitive eyes, under the two bony brows of an ape, or a caveman. Fully awake at last, Cree breathed deep and felt Jolly's lungs expand to take in great gouts of air. It had been so long, so very long. On the table beside the bed, the skull, Chadwick was the most recent of a thousand names, glowed a bright burnt ochre color. As Cree moved Jolly's face about, opening and closing his eyes, raising the skin of his brows, testing his jaw muscles and moving that jaw back and forth, Chadwick's bony features liquefied and moved with him like looking in a mirror or, more properly, a vat of molten lead. Cree let go an ancient howl, a thousand thousand years in the making. He spoke in ancient tongues, ka, 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 and spent himself over the dead whore. It was cataclysmic. The room began to move. Before long, it was shaking violently. No, not now, no! Cree shouted the words, using Jolly's familiar language. I'm so close, my people. The window shattered inward, and Cree was showered in glass, one arm and half his naked torso pincushioned with glass shards. A jagged seam opened in one wall, like a rip in the very fabric of the world. Outside, buildings tumbled and streets cracked wide. Smoke filled the room from below. The smell of burning wood and horse flesh was heavy and nauseating. The ceiling collapsed and the dead woman beneath him plunged through a hole in the floor as gravity took them. The whore's palace toppled in on itself. It took Cree a long time, hours, maybe a day or more, to dig himself from the rubble. 
He found Chadwick amidst the debris, intact, of course. The skull had hardened over an eternity, and nothing so much as a falling four-story building would have hurt it. The skull might have been washed out to sea, but even then, Cree would have found it in time. They hadn't been together for a hundred thousand years by chance. Cree searched Jolly's mind for help. The physician was still there, as small and obscure as a rat in the fetid bowels of an ancient ship's hold. Thousands of years before, Cree had learned that when he leaped, it was best to leap into a shaman. Professor Chadwick, who had found Cree's skull on a shelf in the dark confines of a shuttered medieval leper asylum, hadn't been a shaman, of course, but he had had a very useful knowledge of anatomy. A wonderful knowledge, in fact. But Jolly had trumped even that. He had been a true physician. Cree ignored the rat, queried Jolly's knowledge, and inventoried Jolly's body. His left arm was shattered, useless. Blood leaked from both his ears, and a large glass splinter ruined one eye. Creek cursed with the realization Jolly was half blind. A small, weasley voice, what was left of Jolly Fry M.D., informed his actions. Pull the splinter out. Cree pulled the splinter, and whatever crud eyes are filled with ran down his cheek. The pain was immense. Jolly's legs wobbled for an instant before Cree shored them. He reveled in the hurt, had not suffered physical pain since being burned alive at the stake 500 years before. Shamans made good hosts, which is not so much. He marveled in the physicality of it, thought, without pain there is no master, pain is good. He followed Jolly's instructions to bandage his eye with a piece of his shirt. He was hasty about it, though. He had to find his people. Cree carried Chadwick and worked Jolly's legs up the burned-out avenues of Chinatown and toward the waterfront. It was bad. Fires and smoke were the least of it. Death was everywhere. Pools of blood-colored mud dotted the streets. There was little fresh water. His strength waned. He had to find his people. He had waited so long to bring his people back together, and now it was almost done. His back hurt, the pain exquisite. The pain became ever more exquisite the further he walked. That Weasley voice spoke up again, only now it was less Weasley, less rodent. Jolly had moved out of the ship's hold and into the nether parts. You've hurt your back too, busted it likely. Walk much further and you'll be paralyzed. The voice, all that remained of Jolly, laughed. Don't laugh at me, Cree said. He used Jolly's lips and breath to form the words, but they had that same awful cadence the same sense of water rushing over a cofferdam that had nearly driven Jolly insane over the years. How can I not laugh? Look at you, you're pathetic. Jolly's voice, steady and without that awful cadence. The waterfront before them was unrecognizable save for the sea beyond. All was in shambles, the clinic gone. The cellar was there, however, and Chadwick's people inside. Cree's people in reality. Cree kicked at one of the boarded windows with Jolly's foot and peered in. Pain flared in Jolly's back, ran down both legs. Jolly grimaced. Cree smiled at the small pleasure the pain afforded him. A dozen bodies floated in the muck, drowned, all dead. Jolly's, Cree's, face broke into a dolorous expression of grief. Chadwick's molten bones mirrored the look, the burnt ochre shading to black. Jolly laughed. Cree, who had begun to sob from Jolly's eyes, held up Jolly's hand. He slapped Jolly's face. Don't laugh at me. He slapped him again, and again, and again. 
You're sobbing like an eight-year-old girl. How utterly pathetic. Jolly managed between hits. My people are dead, Grease said. Yes, they are. Not so fucking indestructible after all, eh? Jolly's body was like an animated but schizophrenic puppet, laughing and hollering one moment, sobbing and slapping and shouting the next. Shut the fuck up, Grease screamed. Death-defying, yes. Indestructible, no. Look at them. They look like bloated cows. I bet they swim better dead than alive. As he laughed, Jolly's head pounded with pain, the worst headache of his life. He wondered if he was about to blow an aneurysm, to stroke out. He reached up with his own hand, using his broken arm. The pain was exquisite, but that only seemed to spin Cree's excitement even higher and felt fresh blood trickling from his ear. Cree began to rock Jolly's broken body back and forth, like a retard whose brain was stuck on yo-yo mode. I said, shut up. You shut me up. What a pathetic runt you turned out to be. You want me to shut up? Then get the fuck out of my head. The pain in Jolly's head was even more unbearable now. How was that possible? It simply had to explode, like an overfilled balloon that couldn't help but burst. Cree rose to stand tall on Jolly's feet. I will shut you up. Cree ran Jolly's eyes over the landscape, and Jolly had no choice but to go along for the ride. The bodies floating in the cellar pushed back and forth with the tide. The stink of raw sewage and decaying flesh filled the air with rot. A hand-lettered sign, Jolly Fry, M.D., floated past. Cree turned away, searching the road around them. The ground was saturated and muddy. A dead horse lay over on its side a long block away. Two or three mongrel dogs tore at its flesh. Beyond them, a building smoldered with black smoke. Cree set Chadwick on a rock, turning him to face the avenue. Twenty feet down the buckled avenue, the remnants of a stone wall pushed out of the ground. Cree stared at it a long moment. Go ahead, asshole. Do it, Jolly said. Get it over with. Cree ran, but slipped in the mud at the last moment. Still, he rammed Jolly's body head first into the wall with enough force to knock their brain unconscious. When Jolly woke sometime later, he felt boneless. He could feel nothing below his chest. Well, now you've done it. I told you my back was broken, Jolly said. He propped himself up, laboring hard to keep from drowning in the mud. He thought maybe one of his lungs had been punctured as well, probably a broken rib. What the fuck? Jolly spat blood. Yeah, I'm still here. Ain't shut up yet. We're both pathetic now. You and me, fucking useless. Get out of my head. An instant later, Jolly's head failed to explode. The pain, so intense and unrelenting a moment before, dissipated so completely Jolly had a hard time recalling how bad it had been. He had his blind eye to remind him, though, and his useless legs. Yet Chadwick, too, staring down on him from the rock across the avenue. At least he thought Chadwick was looking at him. Without actual eyes, it was always difficult to tell where Chadwick was looking. I wish I'd never studied medicine, Jolly said. Chadwick didn't answer. His once molten features had solidified into, what, a grimace? His eyes, or rather the bony sockets which had once held his eyes, looked empty. With his last ounce of strength, Jolly tossed a stone. It struck the skull and toppled it off the rock. The skull landed sideways in the muck. The squarish hole in the brain case above one ear 
fashioned from a stone chisel a hundred thousand years before, began to fill with mud. The least detailed plans of a great and complicated apparatus, by Edison McDaniels, first appeared in Lenore Hart's brilliant and eminently readable anthology, The Night Bazaar, Eleven Haunting Tales of Forbidden Wishes and Dangerous Desires, published in 2016. In this dark fantasy anthology, editor Hart invites 11 authors to explore the concept of the night bazaar, a place where the magical intertwines with the everyday. The setting is reminiscent of the Twilight Zone in scope, and throughout the anthology, there is the ever-present sense that something nasty is lurking around the corner. Jim Shear's wonderfully unsettling weekly pass follows a man who sees his own alternate lives unfold on an endless train line. Rich in creativity, Whirl Away by Carol McAllister details the decline of a 40-something businessman as he relives the past in a series of haunted rental tuxedos. The most stunning piece is Edison McDaniels's The Least Detailed Plans of a Great and Complicated Apparatus, a tale of a series of possessions convened by an ancient magical skull with the help of an overeager doctor. There are no pieces that seem out of place. All the stories contribute to a sense of otherworldly dread. Appealing to those who like their fantasy served with a side of psychological horror, this anthology is sure to entertain. The Night Bazaar, Eleven Hunting Tales of Forbidden Wishes and Dangerous Desires, edited by Lenore Hart, is available on Kindle. The second volume of this wonderful anthology is coming soon. For information on how to post a review of the Surgical Fiction Podcast, check the show notes. Your review is much appreciated. This is Edison McDaniels. You've been listening to a special presentation of SurgicalFiction.com. If you've enjoyed this, consider leaving a review and don't hesitate to tell your friends about us and subscribe. Also, remember that I am an audiobook narrator. You can find many of the books I've narrated on Audible, searching under my name, Edison McDaniels. <laughs>